What is the most used man-made material on earth? You guessed right, it's concrete. Look around, it's everywhere. Sidewalks, driveways, foundations, floors you stand on, and even entire buildings are made out of concrete. So why don't we discuss it more? In each episode of Concrete Logic, we will explore one concrete-related topic with the help from industry professionals that are shaping the future of the trade. We'll talk with suppliers, contractors, architects, engineers, specialists, and even some proponents of competing materials about their views of concrete and their vision of its future. And welcome to another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. And today I have Scott Dale. I can't even say your last name, Scott. Say it for me. De Loretto. There it is. And I'm all I'm already on a great start. (laughs) So see, see Tim. See, I got Scott and Tim from Full Force with me today. Um, These guys are fiber experts. Um, um, So they're on here today. Scott, you want you do a better intro than I did. I'm Scott DiLoretto. I've uh, been with Full Force Solutions since uh, September of last year. Uh, been in the industry for 22 years now, I think, somewhere around there. Uh, most of my career has been in concrete chemicals and admixtures and stuff like that. Um, and I've had a couple of stints in specialty products. Uh, Tim and I go way back. Um, he was a batch guy and I was a a new admixture rep out in, in Oregon. So we've known each other most of those 22 years. Nice. And Tim? Yeah, Tim Hartzell here. Um, again, been in the industry like Scott since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Started when I was in, I was about 16 years old, setting forms, doing footings. Um, been in it ever since. I took a little stint about two or three years, did something else. I thought I'd get out of the concrete world. Got back into, started out as a chipping trucks, shoveling under bins, uh, then started driving trucks, went from driving trucks to dispatch, from dispatch to quality control and operations. And then back in 2007, I got into the fiber world. And since then, I haven't turned back. This is, this is where I'm at. Yeah. So you try to get out concrete too. I, I heard someone tell, I, 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 my, I tried to do that too for about five years, um, but it never, never uh, could fully get out of it. Cause when, once people know that you were in concrete, they always ask you concrete questions. I found out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also I had someone uh, tell me before that uh, the concrete industry is like the mob. Like once you're in, you never get out. So it's true. It's true. yeah. Yeah. The other so, great thing uh, about the industry is a lot of money. Uh, for people that, like I said, you know, I started at the bottom, chipping trucks, shoveling, and you can, you know, if you had the drive and the passion for it, sky's the limit in our industry. There's there's a lot of opportunity to grow, and uh, it, it's good, make a good living for people. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it's been good to me. Um, yeah, I started way at the bottom i was at the lowest part of my life when i got into concrete so <laughs> it's uh it, been a uphill struggle ever since it's fed my wife her whole life her dad was a batch guy uh for what's now cal portland in seattle so oh nice that's concrete. a small company <laughs> <Little one. laughs> 
I've heard of it before. Yeah. 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 They, uh, um, we're going to get sidetracked and then we'll get into what we're here talking about. But you, uh, you were mentioned them. Uh, I saw a YouTube video and they were showing, uh, they, they were giving a guy a tour of their cement, uh, manufacturing facility. And I can't remember where it was at, but it was cool. It, they've been at that same, uh, location for like 120 130 years so they had the kilns from the 120 years ago still there they never demoed them they just well they weren't they weren't using them but they kind of showed the transition through the century almost century and a half as they you know progressed with the technology and they're like and the guy pointed to the bottom of the the they were up on a um on one of the buildings and he's pointing to the bottom of the hill there. And he's like, yeah, those are the kilns they used 120 years ago. That was again, as a concrete nerd, I thought that was pretty cool, but, um, yeah. yeah. Anyhow. So we brought, uh, you guys came on today, uh, to help, uh, me and, and our listeners further our education on fiber reinforcement. Um, and, uh, Scott, you want to kind of, talk about what i guess overview of what we're going to talk about today yeah kind of the general direction that we wanted to talk about was uh kind of doing a more holistic approach to concrete slab design and we want to throw out some thoughts on sustainability the resilience of concrete and uh, some better ways for constructability and and controlling costs all right well, if you want to uh, start us off, uh, are you, I guess, uh, when you, you, you want to um, look at slab design, are you talking about, are you guys getting a hold of uh, projects, uh, I guess, at the beginning of, or the conception of the, mm-hmm. the project that's our, now? That's our or, pre- preferred place to get in is in the design phase. It makes it a lot yeah. easier. Um, we do have the ability to, uh, convert things and change things after the bid process as well, too. So Seth, it's, it's just that is harder. Our, our, go ahead, I'm sorry. Our slogan is exactly that from concept to design to placement. You know, that's, we want to be in that spot where we help all the way through. There are so many things that can happen through the process and we'd like to help where it's not just the you know, a product and we turn and burn when something goes wrong, everybody's looking at each other, trying to figure out, well, what happened, you know, what's going on. Um, we like to stay through the whole process to help make sure that the end user, the owner gets what they're looking for and what they paid for. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's everybody's preferred. I'd like, I'd like someone to uh, pick, pick us as their concrete contractor before they even put a pencil to the piece of paper. That's ideal. But I imagine mm-hmm that reality is, is what, you know, what I'm seeing is, is, uh, you guys are brought in to maybe value engineer or, 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 uh, help out in that case, I would say the majority of the time versus, uh, at the design level. Is that a correct statement? Yes, sir. That'd be correct. We we come in a lot when projects already bid, we work with people like you guys and other contractors throughout the company and for country and come up with a, an option that, that'll work for them, that's constructible, um, but also, as you said, value engineering. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, just 
still, still, it seems like everyone's really, really busy. Um, design is, uh, starting to get, I I think maybe caught up with what's going on. I don't know. It's kind of hard to read, but, uh, I know if you, you know, uh, near the end of last year, it seemed like we were waiting for designers to catch up. And I think maybe they're starting to catch up and, uh, get some of these projects out there. And by that time, I think they're exhausted. And, uh, <laughs> cause we reached out, uh, uh, on a project about doing some, uh, let's call it voluntary value engineering versus, uh, the mandatory value engineering because everything's over budget these days. Um, and we reached out and it seemed like, uh, they were like, uh, let's get through these, uh, these mandatory value engineering things first before you guys start tossing new ideas at us. So anyhow, but, uh, uh, Scott, what, uh, when you say holistic view of slab design, what, what do you mean by that? Um, just, I think we've always just continued to do things the way we have always done them. And, um, I like to look at things, um, as a, a whole systems package, um, from from the uh, soil on up to the the top of the finish of the concrete, and everything yeah. in between, not just one little aspect of the whole process. Yeah, there's just so many variables, Seth. That so many things that can go wrong, you know. And that's one of the things you got to got to keep your finger on. But one of the things I wanted to point out right out of the gate, you know, a lot of times we just overcomplicate it, you know. I like to use the acronym KISS, keep it simple, stupid. And that's one of our focuses. Um, you know, make this, uh, there's, a, there's a few things, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of the common issues. There's a lot of them, but there's some, some, some little things, pretty easy things we can do that I'm not saying that it completely eliminates a lot of those common issues, but can definitely uh, help us control those issues and reduce those variables. Uh, things that could happen to your concrete slab, your concrete pavements, which is kind of what we're talking about today is a little bit more on the pavement side um, in general. Um, so a lot of these little things we're going to talk about will really just help out, but keep it simple. You know, don't overcomplicate it. Don't chase it with a bunch of chemicals and a bunch of different things. Just keep it simple. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you want to roll into those common issues? Is that a oh, good place sure. to start? I can do that. So, you know, common issues, this is pretty much 101, but, you know, we'll run through them. Subgrade, subgrade finish, uh, concrete mix, mix design, concrete uh, finish, reinforcement, uh, joint placement, uh, restraint's a big one. You know, Mother Nature really gets us a lot of the time. That's one of the biggest factors is Mother Nature and, uh, you know, improper curing. Oh yeah, I like that one. <laughs> We've been well, doing that forever. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those favorite topics uh, of the day um, in in the concrete industry. I think, um, yeah, no, all those things are man. I could we could spend uh, a good five ten minutes on each one of those things. Uh, so yeah, so the so you're saying there's more to a uh, slab design than just the slab itself. There's other things involved with it is what you're getting at. 
Exactly. Yeah, and you can take all of those. We could talk about, you know, we have multiple influencers within all those uh, challenges we just talked about. You know, you got a geotech, you got a civil structural engineer, you got an architect, you got ready mix your GC, your subcontractor, all these people doing different things um, to make this project, this product work. But all these different people have different ideas on how it works. So a lot of times we're going in different directions. And if we can pull it all together, you know, and work on the accountability side where we got somebody in charge of this. And that's where we like to come in and help with those things. You know, like let's let's take the let's look at the big picture, let's pull everybody together and create a successful project. Make sure everybody's rowing the boat in the same direction. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's the perfect world. We don't live in the perfect world. <laughs> It's our hope and dream. So what's the, what's the, since we're, we're, we're living in a dream right now, Scott's dream. What's, <laughs> uh, what's the perfect project for fiber? Well, non-structural applications are the perfect projects for fibers. I mean, fibers just, there's a value all the way through with fibers that, you know, they do a multitude of things. Sometimes I get a little leery about talking about everything they can do because then, that people sets people back a little bit, um, but we'll cover that here in a few. You know the value of the fibers. Um, one of the things we want to look at is just we talked about earlier. Scott brought about from sub grade up all the way through to the top of the slab. You know how do we produce that? All these other things are happening from the sub grade up. You know what can we do to eliminate some of the issues that come along with that? And we have some some ideas and some thoughts that could help with that as well. Okay. Well, what are they? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you know, subgrade. Let's start there. You know, that's a that's a big issue. There's so many things that can happen with the subgrade. Big one, settlement, right? We know that happens. Um, what we realize in the industry, let's just talk about you know, let's talk about how everybody segregates and takes their own little thing. You know, there's a long time we just all we did is focus on the reinforcement side of it via fibers. We, we really had to take a step back and realize, okay, well, if we really want this to be successful, let's start with what can we do for the subgrade? You know, what, what is out there? And, um, you know, I used to work for a company. It was part fiber, uh, part geosynthetic uh, products. And uh, it always kind of surprised we'd never married the two because, you know, subgrade settlement's a big one. You know, what can we do with that? We do a lot of different things, cement soil stabilizations, um, but we found some products that, you know, they work mechanically. It's like a geo cell. By running a geo cell, we're able to uh, eliminate cement treated soils. Um, we reduce a lot of the labor, haul off and things like that. But we're also able to take these and create a higher K factor with a higher K factor by doing that. Um, and making sure we add that added insurance of the geo products underneath our concrete. We're able to take that and take the concrete and, and a lot of times run it a little bit thinner than we typically would then up the concrete section because if we know it's on a solid foundation then that gives us uh, the opportunity to do so when we don't know that you know as designers we always have to go in and go a little thicker we have to think of the worst case scenario and we still got to create a safety factor in there don't get me wrong there's you know it's not like the end all fix all but um, that's where we start with it it's in that area yeah, that's so, one of those areas that's going to help with 
the overall cost and uh, sustainability kind of all rolls in with stuff like that. Yeah. So what you guys are saying, you spend a little bit more money on your subgrade and what we mean by subgrade is the uh, dirt underneath your slab. Uh, so did you guys see why we're talking about subgrade uh, down in Miami? Uh, there, there's a, um, I forgot what project it is, but they're mixing, uh, they're like drilling down and using this thing that basically looks like a egg beater goes down the ground and mixes cement with the soil to improve this, the subgrade. Um, so I think folks are figuring out if you spend a little bit more on your, uh, your subgrade uh, that there's some cost on the, on the structure itself above, which there's been technologies out there for a long time that have been doing that, that seem very simplistic, uh, and are very economical, at least in my experience, you know, like, uh, geo piers where they go down and they beat stone into the ground. And, uh, that improves, that improves the subgrade and, and allows, like you said, Tim, there sh- should be some savings on your on your your concrete slab that sits on top of that, right? Yeah, because they've had to over-design it for the failure of the, the soil in the past. And now we have the ability to design the soil to, to the structure that we're trying to put up. Right. So what kind of things do you guys see in the, I guess, in the slab design that compensate for poor subgrade? That would be like, uh, like a flashing light to, to like an owner or GC that's out there and they're looking at drawings, um, or even a concrete contractor that wants to help out with value engineering. If they see, what would they see in slab design that should be a, a, a flashing light to them that say, Hey, this is, this is to compensate for bad subgrade. The reinforcement. I mean, are we building the bridge over this bad subgrade? You know, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, they'll resign the thickness as well. Uh, those two things are big key indicators. Uh, but you know, like I said, we, now we look at what do they got going on with their soils? What are they, are they doing anything for them? Um, is it just, uh, you know what, they're going to clean it up, put six inches of base rock and, and pour. Maybe that, you know, then you got good soil conditions. So we, we do take a, take a look at that all the way through. We're looking through plans. We make sure we understand that. All right. That's where it starts. Okay. The product, the, the product we found, uh, it's been around for a long time. It was actually developed by the Army Corps of Engineers. It's a very interesting product. They designed this product for when they had to go into the desert and um make made landing strips and they can use sand we can use you know lesser quality aggregates which again is a greener way to look at things but they'd go in and they'd use this product place it and they'd be landing planes in a couple days versus trying to build runways or even sooner than that you know a day Um, but it's been around a long time and it's proven itself it's a it's a really neat neat idea neat concept the interesting thing is i've just Nobody's ever married the two. Well, why aren't we using this under pavements? You know, why aren't we using this under concrete? You know, it's, it's just we, as Scott said, in our industry, we would get really stuck into doing what we've always done because we know what to expect. You know, there's enough things that happen so people get real comfortable staying in that space. Now, and what is that product again? 
it's a geo cell. You know, you can go anywhere from four inch, eight inch cell, it's, uh, little cylinders. And you can place this, really all you gotta do is clean up the grub, uh, get your grade, you know, pull this product out and then fill the cells in. It's like a big honeycomb. Yeah, that's what I was thinking you guys were saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, where is, yeah, someone was, I saw something. Um, I think it's can be used as a, like a soil stabilizer too on like, um, Bank. exactly. On bankments yeah. and stuff, right? Yeah. I was, I was looking at it for my backyard. My backyard's a mess. Um, anyhow, well, that, yeah. So spend a little bit more on your subgrade. That's, uh, that's some good advice. What else? What else you got? What we're learning though, real quick, is it's not really spending more. We've learned, you know, there's times that we have to over excavate. Like out here at Oregon, there's projects where we're over excavating, you know, two, two and a half, three feet, backfilling with base rock, or we're doing cement treated soils. Again, with this one, you clean it up, you, sh you know, get your grade right, you put this down, you can save you a lot of money on just the trucking, moving material, oh. equipment to move material move material back in we're finding it's actually more cost effective a majority of the time oh okay often you can reuse the native aggregates on site that you've excavated just put them right back into the geo grid and huh. you get the uh, uh an x factor on your k value um and you don't have to chuck stuff out and bring newer stuff in um to the site so you save, there's often, oftentimes a lot of savings, not, not necessarily an added cost, just that it's just added thinking about it ahead of time and not after the fact. Okay. I gotcha. All right. I misspoke. Uh, yeah, no, that's, uh, so spending more time on thinking about your subgrade. And I think there's, I think there's, there's folks out there that are doing that. Um, yeah. uh, yeah, it's just those projects that, uh, seem to wait to the last minute to get things going and they don't g give you ample time to, to, to address the subgrade seems like, um, but, uh, it's going to shrink and swell, especially when you got exterior pavements, there's things it's going to move. When you put traditional reinforcement or if you don't have a smooth subgrade, you know, just rutting from, you know, pulling trucks on, it's happening. I know we're trying to get the job done, but little things like that, it cause restraint. You know, if, if you got a fixed object, let's say rebar, rebar is not going to give, right? I mean, you got a fixed object inside a product that wants to move back and forth. Um, and there's a lot of other ways. We can talk about monolithic footings, um, other things that cause restraint, but something's going to give. And most of the time it's concrete and that's why we'll have a lot of cracking. So one of the things we like to do is let's go through and look at all the different ways that you might have restraint in these slabs. Let's let concrete do its thing. Let's let it move. Um, but a lot of back to that subgrade, making sure we have a smooth finish on that subgrade is very important to uh, have a success with a slab. Yeah. Can we, can we talk a bit about the restraint around uh columns just for my personal <laughs> my personal knowledge. all right so so what what as far as restraint around like columns and 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 um say you're building up let's say you're building a data center uh and you got the slab and it 
uh, the, there's a, at, around the columns, there's a, there's kind of a, a, a detail there that, uh, um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Um, but basically the, the slab sits on top of the, the, uh, uh, foundation or pile cap at the column. So how would, what's the, what would be a good way to make sure there that, that condition, there isn't restraint there that would cause, um, un, undue cracking. And one of the things I was going to point out, even another restraint is, uh, well, like you said there, anytime we pour directly on say a footing or a, uh, around areas like that, you know, we, it, it is important to put, most of the time we're going to be using this as an interior slab. So we're going to be using a vapor barrier, which reduces that restraint. You know, it, it turns into a slip sheet, allows concrete. It gives you a disconnection between that or even grade beams. You know, when you run grade beams, mm -hmm. it does expose. I learned this the hard way. I had cracks, you know, throughout those buildings. Like I don't want people to get everything right. Well, we really didn't where we had those grade beams. They didn't use a vapor barrier. And that was another valuable lesson for me way back when I started this. Um, we didn't have that slip sheet there, but you have to disconnect those things. You have to keep it as flat as your thickness as consistent as you can through, throughout the, the panel. So mm -hmm. yeah, there's different ways you want to uh, disconnect those. The other thing, you know, I like to do a pinwheel or a diamond off those and cut off. We, we like to really just stay, we extend joints and we, we prefer to do that, but we like to stay within the column lines. So you know, usually they're around what, 55, 65 feet, somewhere in there. Um, that's like, and then off of those points, we would like to use a saw cut. Gotcha. Like yeah. The pinwheels, um, so the diamond around the columns. So you leave out the, um, leave out a diamond shaped around the columns. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and when you pour the slab is what I'm trying to explain to you all. Um, so you leave, leave that space around the column and then you go back and pour that um afterwards after a period of time um yeah, that's what you're talking about yeah. what's that and sometimes that's done for yeah but yes that's what we're talking about exactly okay so there's a separation between the the uh the the main slab the main and, slab and the attachment point to that column to the column yep i got you have we're you guys Go ahead, uh, we're Tim. working to create a floating slab. So we want to disconnect it. You know, the load's going to be in the footing where those piers are. And then everything else, we want the slab to be free. Again, what I said earlier, you want to open it up and let it do what it's going to do. If it's going to shrink, that's okay. You know, we can, we understand how that's going to look. Is there any benefit of getting rid of all the 90 degree angles? So you're creating a 90 degree angle in that, that pinwheel des um, design right and you're doing it again when you do saw cuts is there any benefit to doing more of a let's say a circular or a circle uh leave out around the column have you all seen that i haven't had luck that way you know i want okay. to influence the crack that's why we break those that diamond you know that's why we put joints in right we know it's going to crack so all we're doing is making a decorative joint or a decorative crack, decorative excuse crack. me. Yeah, yeah, decorative crack. So really what we're trying to do is make it crack there. That's why we'd rather have that pinwheel or that diamond and cut off those corners 
most of the time that's where it'll you know we created that we weaken that plane we're going to open that up and it's going to shoot through that and set it out in the panel somewhere gotcha all right yeah i've i've someone mentioned that to me i think on a podcast or maybe in a conversation they said it's not a it's not controlled joint it's an influence joint that's right exactly yeah all right so um we talked about so having uh smooth surface that the slab can sit on making sure that it can move and it's not restrained what else what else is a good practice that we need to look out for well scott why don't you talk a little bit about mixes and things we can do to optimize mixes you know before we get into the reinforcement side um yeah i mean that there's lots of uh different admixtures and uh, cement contents and stuff like that that we can do. Uh, all of our shrinkage happens in the paste. So if we can minimize the amount of paste we have, um, you're going to get that much less shrinkage. That's why going with a larger size aggregate where you have less surface area to cover, you can use less paste on that. And uh, but that lends itself to being harder to move around because you're using the, the bigger aggregate. So it's kind of a compromise between the uh, concrete place and finish guys and how much shrinkage you're willing to endure on that project. Right. So, yeah, I mean, like looking at your your aggregates, you know, going through the gradations, making sure we're filling those voids. As Scott said, you know, the more voids we fill, we're able to fill with you know, every area is different. So, you know, we have really good aggregates in some areas. We you know, Sometimes we don't. We have to find other ways to accomplish it, but that is key, you know, making sure you go through that and take a look at that is key to, uh, making these slabs successful. Sure. So uh, if is there's, there's a talk about the slabs here, and I think you'll probably see this, Seth, I don't know if you noticed, but there's more of a trend now with the water cement ratios. You remember when they were, all they were doing is trying to drive that water cement ratio down and you couldn't mm -hmm. place it. It wasn't constructible. It was hard to work with. There was other issues. I can, I can put a laundry list of issues even doing that. You see now the trend is, you know, that 0.50, maybe even a little bit more, 0.48, 0.52. You're seeing those water cement ratios on these interior slabs, um, reducing the admixtures and the chemicals that people put in and just making it a more constructible uh, product place. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying if uh, someone suggests using fiber and doesn't ask for your mixed designs, that you probably should run the other direction. <laughs> it's it's no. always good to to make the whole system work, right? Yeah. And then you know, we can talk about fibers a little bit and go on to that. Start talking about reinforcement. You know, again, we're talking about rebar. It's a fixed object. You know, you look at ACI. Your area still has to be X, you know, if you're going to go joint free, and that's a lot of steel, a lot of rebar. But also talks about it's going to create a lot of hairline cracks. You know, they're fine cracks. They're going to be tight cracks, but you're going to have a lot of cracks. Um, the fibers work, you know, as the concrete starts to develop micro strains due to the tensile stresses it's creating when, when it's uh, building its tensile strength. The fibers, what they can do is they capture all those micro strains. And instead of letting those cracks develop in one spot, you're distributing those cracks, millions and millions of cracks throughout the panel of concrete. And that's, that's how the fibers and the macro fibers work. 
it's, you know, it's pretty simple. People are really always trying to figure that out. Like what's going on here? Why is this working? That's how it works. But back to the mix design too, you know, the higher dosage rates now, there's fiber doses anywhere from the, on the low end of macros is three pounds. Um, I've been up to 10 pounds, but I like to not really go over seven and a half pounds unless we have to. But by doing that, you know, fibers create surface area as well. And that's what, you know, Scott's touched on. We're talking about paste. You, you know, that's where we come in. And that's where a lot of the failures are. People get a lot more fibers on the surface, a lot more fibers exposed because there's not enough paste um, to cover those fibers that cover that surface area. That's why it's important to get to align yourself with people that will take a look at that for you. Again, I'm not trying to overcomplicate this. There's just a lot of resources, a lot of people in our industry that could take a look at that and say, okay, give me your mix. Let's look at your gradations. Let's look what you got going. We know we got this much surface area on our fibers. You know, this is our recommendation. Or, you know, it might have too much paste. And say, hey, you know, we can lean this up a little bit. You got plenty of paste and uh, we can reduce that shrinkage. Yeah. Is there a, um, a special way that you need to finish when you have a fiber mix, a mix with a fiber? So you yes, don't have sir. the uh, the infamous hairy slab? You're not going to have these that conversations problem. without talking about the hairy slabs. There's just no way <laughs> to get around it, that's for sure. So everybody's got one of those yeah. projects. <laughs> the best way for me to explain that, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about water retention in our slabs, you know, how the fibers work as well. We talk about plastic shrinkage. We, we've already talked about drying shrinkage, helping with crack containment. We got a little bit ahead of the uh, part there. But, you know, when we reduce the plastic settlement, for people that don't understand what plastic settlements, when you, you're running a slump and your aggregates want to work their way to the bottom, your, your heavy, your coarse aggregates do. When they settle to the bottom, it creates and starts pushing the water up. When they pushes the water up, it creates these little channels called capillaries. And uh, that's where the water escapes. So that's where when you'll see that bleed water, when you see those puddles of water on top of your surface, uh, that's, a, that's a key driver. There's other ways that happens as well. That's definitely a key driver. The fibers, if you imagine, you got all these fibers throughout the matrix, the, the concrete, you know, we look and we call it, you know, slump loss, parent slump loss. Well, the fibers don't absorb any water, but they make the concrete more cohesive because you're bridging all the materials together. They don't allow the aggregates to settle, push down. They keep all your coarse aggregates to the surface and keeping your keeping all those consistent and the mix consistent throughout is key. So by doing that, then we greatly slow down that water migration that can escape and we slow that down and keep the moisture inside the concrete as well. That's what I'm talking about. You know, there's a multitude of things that fibers can do. They don't only just hold cracks together when they form, but they help a lot. Those plastic sticks, well, where concrete's most vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that. That uh, that would be key. So you, um, so you're saying like the fiber kind of acts like almost like a net, keeps everything in place. Correct as well right. and when we're talking we're talking about we should clarify this we're talking microfibers right we're talking macros the macros inch and okay two, inch and a half to two and a quarter three okay. pound minimum and but the then, macros you know, the uh, just to clarify macros are the ones that do do a um can replace structural um can replace rebar Rebar for temperature and crack control. 
Right. Not, not right. for structural purposes. Not for structural. Okay. All right. Just we hear some claims, and that's I know the industry. I guess we're trying to find a place for that. So, you know, most of your interior slabs they're not structural. You know, they do have load bearing capacity, and those are things we take into account. But you know, fibers aren't there for structures. We can't build a bridge out of fibers and fibers alone. You know, that I just want to make sure we're clear there. It's not that they can't. We can't do heavy loads. We sure can. Anything that's you know ground supported or supported by a deck. We can absolutely do that, but it's a combination of the ground support plus the fibers. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so back to again. the. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say back to the hairy slab. You know, one of the key things and what where I was where I was leading with that is when you retain that moisture and keep it in the slab, which is what we want to do. It gives what a lot of finishers, you know, it's a false set. It's not that it's set up any quicker. Your set time stays the same, but instead of having that bleed water come to the top where finishers are usually out, you know, eating their sandwich, drinking coffee or doing whatever they're doing, waiting for the moisture to come through, it gives that the concrete always have that haze because that bleed water has come to the top. And that's where, you know, we'll prematurely get on the slab and start to finish it. When we're finishing that early, that's where we work the fibers and the surface. You know, and it, it, it is a timing. It's, it's something that skill set you learn over time. I mean, we got guys out there now that we do slabs at seven and a half pounds, five pounds, one golden trial awards where you, you just don't see a fiber. They get it. They wait until that, you know, they don't get excited. They wait until, you know, they think it's time to get on and they wait longer. And um, it goes back to the old school, you know, do the old, you step on it. Just make sure, you know, most people go in a sixteenth of an inch. I'd probably go in a quarter of an inch with, uh the way i'm built but anyway you uh, want to it's all about the timing and it is something you'll learn you'll learn quick but if you get on it too early it's green and you even get out there with your pans or what have you and you start leaving that wake behind and you've got that paste coming to the surface well that paste you're coming you got the fibers coming and that's where you start chasing it so timing is key you know you know if you're people out in the industry that do what we do you know everybody can go out and help you with that um, like Scott goes out on jobs a lot of times and works with people just making sure, especially if they're new to it, making sure their timing and things are correct. So that way you get past the first one, you get a little better, a little better. Then we don't have those issues. Gotcha. You use the uh, QC that you got from your ready mix producer. They know their mixes. They know set times. Um, and temperature plays a big part. You know, the concrete temperature and the ambient temperatures will play a big part in that, um, how long it takes to set up and, and whatnot. And you can, you can time it out fairly accurately just with math. And it's all dependent on, on your mix design. So there's not a set, there's not a set time. There's like, Hey, you know, 30 minutes after you get it down, you guys yeah. can jump on it. It's going to depend job to job. And job to job and mix to mix uh, yeah. and uh, change into all the one L's and stuff that we're doing has popped up some set time um, questions. I mean, it's not anything that's not overcomable, but we just have to know what the issues are. And again, think about it before the actual concrete's on the ground, have, have those conversations, have the, the open conversations about how long is this going to take? Yeah. yeah. Even if you're, I was going to say, even if, you know, I'm just, 
thinking about on a job, you know, you're, you're making decisions from poor to poor. So if you're going to make any kind of adjustment from one poor to the next, you know, if you're withholding water or anything like that, and then adding it when it, the truck gets there, all that stuff needs to be communicated to you, to folks, um, that are, you know, fibers or wh whoever, right. Yeah. That would all have implications as, yeah. as well. Well, and just changes in the weather. Well, uh, from day to day, I mean, if you've got a bunch of 80 degree days in a row and then all of a sudden it's 60 out, you're going to have, I won't say set time issues, but you're going to have a change in the set time because hmm. your concrete yeah, temperature is yeah, going to be lower. Yeah, you have differential set too. You know, if you, you're dealing with mother nature and your humidity drops and your heat goes up, well, that surface is going to take off a little bit quicker than the interior. So there's all things, and that's with or without fibers. So that's just something that you know we got to pay attention to when we're out placing concrete. Yeah, no, you if you're in concrete, you have to be a chemist, a weatherman, yeah. and a logistic specialist. Exactly, and sometimes yeah. really lucky. And lucky, <laughs> oh, lucky all the time. Yeah. All right. Uh, what other issues are there uh, that we need to talk about be before we end this one? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about you know some of the new technology with the silicates or sodium silicates. I wanted Scott to talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's a newer technology. Well, it's been around a while, but it's a newer technology. You start seeing the market a little bit more. Uh, one of the things we want to talk about again is you know we want to keep the moisture in. Um, we want to be careful, you know, ACI's definition of, of internal cure. Uh, where's that at, Scott? You want to, what do you have that out there? Yeah. Um, so curing in, in, in and of itself is the ability to maintain uh, temperature and moisture for uh, time long enough to get the strength that's required for that mix. Um, internal curing is the process by which uh, I'll just read the ACI definition uh, process by which hydration of cement continues because of the availability of internal water that is not part of the mixing water. Um, and that's from ACI concrete terms in uh, 2018. Um, and we, we want to make sure that we help that process along um, and one of those ways is using a sodium silicate type product to make more concrete hydration product in your concrete. And concrete's a big, great big gray sponge. Um, back in probably around 1970, uh, the construction industry came to the cement and concrete folks and asked to build faster Get, gain strength faster and build with more water so they can pump it and, and whatnot. Um, and so we ground the cement finer, which allowed more surface area, it reacted faster. They were able to use less cement, more water, and that caused more permeable concrete, which allows our water to escape from the concrete. Mm -hmm. uh, by putting in a product like a sodium silicate, you're able to close those pores back up and maintain that moisture content in the concrete for a longer period of time. Which is key. That's, yeah. That is key to making all this work. Um, I'm a, I'm a, 
huge believer in these products, the sodium silicates or the nanotechnology. Uh, again, it's just you're utilizing the moisture that's already there. We're not adding moisture, so we're not going to say we're internally curing, but we're optimizing. We're holding on to the water that's in there and giving the concrete its best shot for success. Have you guys been successful in getting that in the specs for, we're let's say, replacement for, for wet curing? Because it's still all these specs I'm looking at. I haven't run across one yet that says, oh, by the way, you have this option of internal curing. I, I've been successful in several areas. Um, I've worked in different parts of the country. Um, and I, I do know of some specs that are out there where um, it, it is an option. You can either wet cure it or you can use products like these to um, to help with the curing aspects of it. Was that uh, is that DOT work or is that private work or both? It's more, yeah, just private commercial Okay. Um, and and it, it happens in schools and hospitals and stuff like that. Yeah, I know there's DOTs in Midwest Indiana. that, yeah, Indiana, that, thank you, yeah. Uh, yeah. that have it in there, but it hasn't hit, at least over here in Virginia, haven't seen it yet. I'm trying to get uh, folks to look at it. I agree with you. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it makes a whole lot of sense, uh, the internal cure. It just, uh, it's not new, like you mentioned. But it's something that uh, it's gaining a little bit of traction, I think. Uh, and, and, and it's uh, I think it's because of the um, maybe because of the, the change to the 1L cement. Uh, it's maybe that's the reason. Or it could be that um, there are some DOTs that have uh, approved its use and, and that's gained traction. One yeah, of the things I think we need to learn how to do, and actually we're working on right now internally, is really how do you quantify? Where Where's the boundaries? You know, how low of humidity, how high a peak can we go where, you know, we're retaining enough moisture to hydrate the cement, to do everything it needs to do. And we're, we're doing some testing. Like we're going some pretty extreme uh, lows with the humidity and the heat, and then we're going to try to, do a lot of testing, find out where that sweet spot is. That way the industry has a place to start understanding, okay, well, if your, your humidity drops below 30%, then you need to do a wet here. You know, if you're in between, I don't know what the number is yet, but I'm just throwing some just round numbers out there. Just say you're, you know, you're above 40% and your temperature is below 90 degrees, no need for wet here. Those mm -hmm. are some things we're working on. We want to give, we want to give you guys, the people that place in the concrete, some guidelines that you understand and we understand. Yeah, we don't want to oversell anything uh, that does nobody any good, you know. So one of the, we, we really are determined to figure out where that sweet spot is. I got you. So not just uh, blanket across the uh, across the board as far as uh, curing, like chemical cure. That's why we're going to do the whole job, or wet cure. That's why we're going to do the whole job. Internal cure. That's what we're going to do the whole job. So you're saying we're 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 going to complicate things a little bit and and give us you know in certain situations this is what you want to do kind of like uh, hot weather cold weather kind of yeah it's, it's your toolbox you 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 got different hammers different tools that you use for different purposes um, sometimes you're going to need a topical help because the ambient conditions are too extreme. Um, and sometimes it's going to be just fine 
working with the products that are internally in the concrete. Yeah. Um, and no, I think to, to that point, the, your topical cures, like uh, the actual uh, 309s and 1315s, they only really need to be about 50% as effective as water curing um, to pass their ASTMs. And that's if they're applied in a lab at the appropriate square footage and with a decent shape and sprayer that's not all broken and had form oil in it and everything else. Yeah. 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 Seth, is the, the durability. I mean, what's happening when we densify this concrete and we plug those capillaries, we're just products making concrete really dense. So we, we are like, well, let's check this out. Let's do some ASTM testing to see you know, what we do for abrasion. And we did some of the most aggressive uh, abrasion testing out there. And come to find out, you know, we did a lot of testing. Uh, come to find out, um, we can compete with Shake-On partners, the dry shakes, things like that, by using the combination of the fibers, using, using the combination of the sodium silicate and a topical that we use <clears throat> to uh, on the, in the concrete. Um, by doing that and densifying the surface, we're able to get rid of that shake-on. You know, shake-ons cause a lot of other problems. One of the key factors is delamination. You need enough moisture to to hydrate that that uh, cement you put on top or the, the dry shake you put on top. A lot of times you don't. And, you know, more often than not, you'll have some delamination in these projects. When you run this way, it's a simple, simple process. It's placed, you know, it's put in the mix, the ready-mix plant. Top is put on by the concrete contractor, and it's just a one and done. It keeps it real simple. Yeah. Well, I think we need to. Uh, uh, I think you you started the podcast on the uh, keep it simple uh, acronym there. Uh, when we start talking about you know doing all these different things and applications and internal things, I, I think the struggle is 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 the cost, but also doing these things, um, correctly. So I think when we start talking about doing things like that, in my opinion, I don't know if those are, um, definitely not, I, um, something that is good for every project, but definitely there's some applications there depending on what the owner wants and, what they're in there's always applications for it there's yeah so like with just changing out um number threes on 18s yeah uh and putting three or five pounds of fiber in there you're actually probably going to have savings and if nothing else you're going to save time you're going to save safety um you can save on insurance costs because you don't have rod busters out there tying rebar and stuff like that um, you're saving on job site space because you don't have to store all that extra rebar out there. You don't have 40 extra trucks coming into the job site to deliver that steel. And you have maybe two or three truck loads go to the ready mix supplier um, to bring your reinforcement in the back of the truck. It's also yeah. in, in, in three-dimensional throughout the concrete where the rebar is only in one plane. And it has to be at a specific area of the concrete depth to be of any benefit or value to the crack control. And if it goes too high, then you get settlement cracking over that. And you got other other forms of 
issues on the job site. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's a lot of benefits to adding things in the back of the mixer truck. Um and and it doesn't necessarily have to add cost. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. More often, I, more often than not it, it reduces costs, like Scott said. More often than not it does. Yeah, that's what we need to focus on. Uh not not making concrete a premium, make concrete cheap. That's why concrete got popular in the early 1900s because it was a cheap building material. Um, we, we, One example I'd like to give, Seth, if you don't mind, you know, we're talking about, you know, going into projects. We, we were doing a project in Tennessee. It's a little extreme, but it was a million square feet, um, number five at 18 on center, I believe. And his job, it would have taken 37, based off 40,000 pound loads of rebar, it would have taken 37 truckloads of rebar to bring that in. Using the, the macro fibers were at five pounds per yard, it was 2.7 truckloads. So, you know, productivity, there's so many different ways you can see the benefit uh, of, of looking at it that way. And that's a little bit more on the sustainable side, but it's something we need to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know uh, any rod busters that like tying number threes, a bunch of number threes. Yeah, they get paid by the ton. You got to tie a lot of number threes to make a ton. So. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else you guys want to go over before we wrap this one up? Did we hit on all the things? I think all right. we're pretty good. All right, good. Well, uh, if folks want to reach out to you all and learn more about Full Force, Scott, uh, you're on. I know you're on LinkedIn. You got a new email <laughs> I'm on address. LinkedIn quite a bit. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you can reach me email at Scott D at Full Force Solutions with an S dot US, and my phone number is two five three three six five four four three seven. And Tim. Uh, mine is Tim at fullforcesolutions.com. I don't think it's us on that. It used to be us with fiber force, Scott, uh, oh. dot com. And, uh, phone number is 541-580-9553. Yeah. So we'll, we'll put that all on the show notes and, uh, you guys can check it out. And when we, uh, put this up on LinkedIn, uh, oh. make sure we, we put you y'all's contacts on there as well. Um, Scott and Tim, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yes, sir. Hey, Seth, I do stand corrected. It is .us. My apologies, Scott. And that concludes another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. I hope you got some value out of that episode and learned a thing or two. If you did, visit our website, ConcreteLogicPodcast.com. Click on the Show Support tab and learn how you can be listed as a producer of an episode. Again, that's ConcreteLogicPodcast.com. Click on Show Support tab to learn how you can support the show. And as always, Mike Dutton will take us out. Put some diesel in the lights and wait till the trucks roll up. And this ain't how most folks live their lives. Dripping in sweat, working overtime.
for their 